Hello once again, podcast world. I have a very active brain. It is always going. Well, at least until about nine o'clock at night, because then it becomes comatose. But the rest of the day, it's moving faster than I can usually keep up with. I want to start this podcast with three things that have weighed heavily on my mind over the past weeks. And then I'm going to tie it all into the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. Welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but Rather Uncertain. The first thing I've been thinking about lately are a few documentary series about church world that I've seen or listened to recently, and they've really been disturbing for me. There are two different documentaries about Carl Lenz at Hillsong's New York and the Hillsong struggles in general. There's a podcast series called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill that deals with the fall of Mark Driscoll. And finally, a documentary about a Christian family with 19 children that had a very popular evangelical reality TV series here in the USA. Pretty much every episode of these things left me speechless. It wasn't the failure of men like Carl Lentz or Mark Driscoll or Jim Bob Duger that got to me. It was the underlying philosophy of the modern megachurch that led to that kind of behavior that really upsets me. A philosophy that I totally endorsed for a very long time. And even though I fortunately didn't have the kind of moral failures that others have had, I still felt culpable because of my endorsement and proclamation of that philosophy. So what is the philosophy? First and foremost, it's about more. More people, more salvations, more baptisms, more events, more campuses, more money, more staff, more everything. More drove everything I did for many years. More, bigger, better. It is a dangerous philosophy. Another part of the philosophy, although it's not as openly as expressed, is the idea that as long as people are getting saved, then bad behavior is either justified or just swept under the rug. Because if that behavior ever became public, it would do great damage to what God was doing. If you follow the stories of our fallen evangelical heroes, you hear it over and over again. It's like in hindsight, after everything is blown up, people say things like, well, I was quite concerned, but I was afraid that if I said anything, I would mess up all that God is doing here. 
We sacrificed honesty and transparency and authenticity on the altar of results and progress and growth. For every one of these highly publicized failures of church leaders, there are a hundred more that we've never heard of. I don't think this is just a story about the failure of weak men. I think the system is flawed. And unless we change the system, unless the underlying philosophy changes, I think we will continue to have more and more failure. When I hear these stories of failure in the church, I don't feel judgmental or superior. As they say, there but for the grace of God go I. If I had the talent of Mark Driscoll or Carl Lenz, or if I had the leadership ability of Bill Hybels or Brian Houston, I might have fallen into the same trap because the system is flawed. How did we get it so wrong? Okay, here's the second thing that's been on my mind of late. As I write this, it's the 4th of July, the day that the USA celebrates its independence from Britain. The celebrations last the entire weekend with flags and fireworks and renditions of Lee Greenwood's I'm proud to be an American filling the air. In our churches, we'll sing God bless America and my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty of thee we sing. Politicians from both sides of the aisle will make speeches and tweet messages about America being the best country in the world. It's called American exceptionalism. We have the greatest democracy in the whole world and we are the best people in the whole world. And American exceptionalism is very closely tied to evangelical Christianity. I heard someone speaking on TV of New York City as the most beautiful city in the world. I actually spoke back to the TV and I said, really? Apparently you have never seen Cape Town. I have only one memory of kindergarten. Every morning we stood, put our hands over our hearts, and recited the Pledge of Allegiance. Then when I was in fifth and sixth grades, I was a patrol boy. So I had this really cool belt that went around my waist and over one shoulder. And I got to stand on the corner directing traffic and telling all the little peon kids when they could cross the roads and when they had to wait. On some days, the really cool thing was that you got to put up or take down the American flag from this massive pole that stood in front of our elementary school. There are strict rules about how to handle it and how to fold it, and you dare not let it touch the ground. I took my role very seriously. But after living almost half of my life outside of America, something inside me cringes when I hear of people speaking about American exceptionalism and about Christian nationalism. 
Don't get me wrong, there are things about America that are wonderful. I am incredibly grateful for my heritage and my freedom in this country. But to say that we are the best country in the world, that we have the greatest democracy, something about that just doesn't sit well with me anymore. Okay, random thought number three. In the past few weeks, the U.S. Supreme Court has made some rulings that are really disturbing in my view. One of them dealt with LGBTQ plus rights, and the other may have put an end to affirmative action as we know it today. I won't bore you with all the details, but these clearly are both issues of justice. And it feels like in America we are moving backwards, that we are taking rights away from the people on the margins, taking away civil rights that people have bled and died for. And these rulings have been very supported by the Christian evangelical church as a whole, which is the part that is really upsetting to me. Okay, now hold on to those three things while we move on to Matthew chapter 5, which is the beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Bible doesn't actually call it that. We just call it that because it begins with Jesus on a hillside speaking to the people. And the sermon goes on for three chapters in Matthew. I doubt if it's actually like one sermon. I think it's more of a collection of things that Jesus said during his ministry and probably things that he said over and over and over again speaking to the people. But this Sermon on the Mount begins with what we call the Beatitudes. There are 10 of them, and they all start with the word blessed. First, let me talk about what the Beatitudes are not. They're not a formula for how to be blessed by God. They're not what we try to aspire to in order to receive God's blessing. And these Beatitudes are not transactional. In other words, it isn't um, if you do this, then God will bless you, and if you do this, then God will bless you. The idea of it not being transactional was pretty radical idea for, for Jewish people. See, Judaism was based on transactions with God, blessings and curses. If you follow the law, you are blessed. If you didn't, you were cursed. These Beatitudes are not about transactional relationship with God, but they are about where God can be found where God can be experienced. The Greek word that we translate as blessed is makaros. And it's worth delving into this word just a little bit, or at least until your eyes start to glaze over with my nerdy Bible stuff. But it's a word that's used a number of different ways in Greek society, although they're all kind of related. First, makaros was used to speak of the gods, 
To be blessed was to be a god. Or it could be speaking of people that were dead and had moved on to the world of the gods. So they were like above the cares of this world. But sometimes the word was also used to describe the elite of society, people that were above all of the rest of us. In some respect, gods, but still in an earthly body. Now, when the Greeks translated the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, they used the word a little bit differently. It was used for people that entered into this very transactional relationship with God. If they were good enough, and if they obeyed the law properly, they were blessed. They were blessed with children and land and livestock. Material wealth as the result of right living was the measure of being blessed. What is common among all the uses of the word was that Makaros was not for the average person. It was for the privileged. And for the Jewish people, it was very transactional. If you were blessed by God, it was obvious because you had a lot of stuff. It's still very much the idea of being blessed in our Christianity today. If you are among the privileged class, then you obviously are blessed by God. Or, or to tie it into what I was saying at the beginning, if you have a big church, then you are blessed by God. Jesus seems to be turning this thing of being blessed on its head. Jesus says that the blessed are the poor, the meek, those that mourn, the merciful, the pure in heart, those that hunger for justice, those who are peacemakers, those who are persecuted. It's pretty radical stuff for a Jewish rabbi. And I've been thinking on this passage for quite a while and trying to like, put it in the context of history or to put myself in that time and place as best I can. What we know is that Matthew was written 50 or 60 years after the death of Jesus. So Matthew is writing from memory of 50 or 60 years before, as well as from things that have been spoken about Jesus by others. But as he writes, it's all filtered through what he understands now, 50 years later, about who Jesus was and all that he did. 50 years ago, I was 19 years old. At that time in my life, I was running around Europe with Francis Schaeffer working on a documentary film series. If I had written about my experiences then, it would certainly look very different than if I wrote about it today. I, I see it very differently today than I did 50 years ago. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, it, it comes across as if Jesus had all this stuff, like, figured out. Like he had his whole theology down before he ever started his ministry. But I wonder if that's true. 
I feel like there's 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 got to be at least a pretty good possibility that Jesus was deconstructing Jewish theology kind of as he went. He was learning and growing as he moved on in his life. Let me give you an example. Then I'll come back to the Beatitudes. In both Mark 7 and in Matthew 15, there's a story about a Gentile woman. She comes to Jesus for healing for her daughter who's demon-possessed. Let, let me read you just a little of this um, from the book of Mark. From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and didn't want anyone to know he was there, yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, of Syrophoenician origin, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. This is crazy, actually. Jesus calls this lady a dog. In fact, he calls all Gentiles dogs. A lot of people try to whitewash this, saying Jesus was just testing her to see how she would respond. And, and I see why they want to say that, because it doesn't line up with other times in Jesus' ministry, when he had all kinds of time for Gentile people, but he didn't on this day. This day they were all dogs. But let me read on. But, he answered, but she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And when she went home, she found the child lying on her bed and the demon was gone. I wonder if this was a defining moment for Jesus. We've all had those, right? That moment when the penny drops, when something comes into view that we've never seen before and suddenly we see it. And I wonder if in this moment, Jesus comes to term with the fact that this kingdom that he speaks of is for everybody, not just the Jews. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to the Beatitudes. For his entire life, Jesus has been taught two things about blessings. One is that it's the result of obedience to the law. And the second was that your blessing is seen in things like land and children and wealth. He had been taught all of his life that privilege was a sign of God's blessing. So I wonder if Jesus looks at all this and says, man, something is not right. We have been taught things, and we have always believed things that just don't hold up. Maybe we've got this wrong. 
And then Jesus says, privilege is not a sign of God's blessing. Those on the margins, the outcasts, the forgotten, the oppressed, they are the recipients of God's blessing. Or you could say that Jesus comes to understand that God is not found in privilege. God is found on the margins. God is not found in the privilege of Jewishness. God is found on the margins. If you want to know God, go to the margins. Be a peacemaker. Fight for justice in our world. Be an ally of those who are marginalized. Now, let me go back to my thoughts at the beginning of all of this. When I look at what I used to believe about the modern church in our world, I ask myself how we got it so wrong, how I got it so wrong. Here are some things that I used to believe, although I probably wouldn't voice it exactly like this, but let me just put it out there. I probably believed that numerical church growth is a sign of God's blessing. Or that working 80 hours a week is the sign of a pastor that is truly committed to God. Or that God's plan is always more, bigger, better. If people are getting saved, then everything else must be okay. Or that God has blessed the USA because it's a Christian country. I don't believe those things anymore. Let me end with one story that I may have told in this podcast before because I've told it a lot of times. And so if I have, forgive me but I think it's relevant. If you've listened to my podcast for a while, or if you know Sheila and I, you know that for eight years, we were crisis parents in South Africa. We cared for six abandoned babies in our home. And over the course of eight years, we cared for 64 beautiful little lives. On my 60th birthday, we had a party planned. It wasn't a massive event because I don't really like those. It was just a few friends that were getting together for a meal at one of our friends' houses. We had a little boy in our care who was just a few months old and got very sick on that day. And so Sheila and I ended up at the hospital with him for the evening and I missed my own 60th party. He was in the hospital for a few weeks. When he was, when he was born, he was diagnosed as... HIV negative, but it turned out that that was wrong. He was positive. And they were worried about TB and so it took quite a while to get him sorted out before he could come home. I was up visiting him when I had one of those defining moments in my life. It was a Sunday afternoon. I was 
tired because I had just preached three services back to back to maybe 2,000 people in total. Now I was sitting in the government hospital holding this little boy who had no family other than Sheila and I. And as I sat there, I had this overwhelming feeling that sitting with this little child in my arms was the most spiritual thing I had done all day. It wasn't in preaching to 2,000 people in an air-conditioned auditorium. It was in this moment with this little child. Suddenly, this passage in Matthew 25 came to life. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and then you visited me. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. As I looked into the eyes of that beautiful child, I was looking into the eyes of God. If you are looking for God, go to the margins. If you want to know where the blessing of God is, it's found on the margins. Shalom.